no guarantee for success, but there are ways to get closer to it when you do the right things. Who you surround yourself with is just as important as what you do. Finding the right people, the right classes, the right activities, and taking the right tests are all decisions that shape your future. Find out more today on Destination University with Dr. Cynthia Colon. Dr. Colon and her guests will give you the tips you need, whether you're a student, parent, or educator. Now, here is your host, Dr. Cynthia Colon. Pepsi or Coke? Remember the Pepsi challenge? It was a blind taste test with cup A and cup B filled with cola. The taster chose which cup they preferred, and then they were shown which brand they chose. John Scully, CEO of Pepsi at the time, shared that time after time, Pepsi was chosen when blind tested. But, he said, when the brand was there, Coke won out. So, which would you choose? Starbucks or coffee bean? McDonald's or Burger King? Apple or PC? Harvard or Pomona? UCLA or Azusa Pacific? Ohio State or Indiana University? Berkeley or UT Austin? Northwestern or LMU? Here's the thing. When it comes to colleges, more often than not, we are lured in by the brand name, what I call the pretty, the perfect, and prestigious. My question to you is this. Are the institutions we covet the perfect choice for everyone? Do you go with Ivy or intuition? Choosing intuition takes much more courage than following what may seem the obvious choice. If you go with what feels right to you, you will need a group of cheerleaders and believers to back your choice. Today's lesson is simple. Find your team of supporters. I'm Dr. Cynthia Colon, author of the book Tips, Tales, and Truths for Teens. Welcome to Destination University, where we explore extraordinary people who lived ordinary childhoods and found a pathway to college for themselves, for others, or went back to college years later. If you are a student, parent of a student, you teach students, or you are a student of life, (laughs) this show is for you. Wow. Hello, Julie. Hello, Cynthia. (laughs) We are broadcasting live from the Buckley School here in Sherman Oaks. It is a lovely, lovely day, and this campus is just as gorgeous as I remember it. Thank you. Thank you to the tech team and the media team. And this is my colleague, my friend uh, extraordinaire, Julie Taylor Vaz. Welcome, Julie. How are you feeling? I feel great. Thank you so much for having me. We are um, nestled in this very little spot in Southern California. So what I want you to do before we do anything is just describe for our listeners uh, across the country where we're nestled. You know, where are we in Southern California? We are in a beautiful canyon surrounded by greenery and deer sometimes <laughs> in the Santa Monica Mountains where the San Fernando Valley meets L.A. proper. We are just over the hill from Hollywood, California. We're so close to Hollywood, but really for all intents and purposes, we're in the valley. We are we're valley, valley girls today. That's right. right. <laughs> which, uh, which is what I love uh, because we can be in the valley and also be minutes and moments away from CBS Studios and Warner Brothers and all of that good good stuff that people sort of always attribute to Los Angeles. Right? That's right. Yeah. So I think the last time we saw each other, we were both at different institutions. I was uh, at Marymount, and you were at another private independent school. And this is what I love about private schools is the community, right? And not to say that that's not found in other schools, but it's a really you – know, I got lost on my way to your, your office, and, and there were these two wonderful women who were coming out with their lunch, and they said, oh, well, let me walk you over yes. to Julie's office. And I was like – Okay, great. I feel like I'm at Disneyland already. (laughs) So anyway, well, today we're talking about Ivy or institution. And so I think the title, you know, it makes no secret that we're going to get to the point where you were having to choose between Ivy League or going with your intuition. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to that quickly, uh, or we're going to get to that at some point today. So 
It's always a tease, right? <laughs> We're going to get to that, and you'll tell us sort of what you ended up choosing. Sure. But before we do that, let's set the scene for where you grew up. I, I loved talking to you a couple of weeks ago, and I thought this was really a story that people should hear about um, your journey, your pathway to college. So tell us about the Crescent City. Sure. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, on the Gulf Coast, and I attended a parochial school for kindergarten through fifth grade, where my (laughs) parish church and my school and my neighborhood and my family were all the same community. They overlapped so much, they were all one and the same. And (laughs) that was just a really great supportive foundation from which to start my education. So the Catholic school, you were wearing the the Catholic school uniform the whole way. That's right. right. It was a little blue skirt and saddle Oxfords with a white shirt with a pocket that always had a handkerchief in it. Ooh, what color was the handkerchief? White. (laughs) I love it. I loved when uh, at Marymount, the girls had to wear a dress uniform on Mondays and they had to wear their loafers. They had to wear their penny loafers. So the, the saddle shoes were not, you know, not then, but the loafers were always shiny and spinning, spinning shine. So this was your family. You, I love that you use the term. This was your, your family, your neighborhood, your community. They were your everything. Yes. Right. As you grew up, right. The church, the school, the neighborhood, all as one family. Mm-hmm. So walk us through who in your who was in your life, uh, in elementary school, and then walk us through high school that were people that were maybe models or doing things, you know, heading to college. Mm -hmm. The models for me were largely family members. My cousin, Todd Thomas, who was a few years older than I was, um, and my godbrother, Billy Foster, Dr. Clarence Foster. He also (laughs) goes by the name Tripp. They were both (laughs) really great students who were at the top of their classes at their high schools a few years ahead of me, and they both went away to college. Uh So they let me see that I could go away to college if I was a good student and if I wanted to. Um, And they encouraged me to pursue that idea. Now, I don't know if I asked you this before, but did your parents go to college? No, I'm first Uh generation to college. Okay, me too. And both of my colleagues who are college counselors here with me at Buckley are also first generation to college. So I think many people who find their way to this profession were first generation to college. Right. Because, and and for me, and and you can, it it was so important for me to give that gift back to other people. Someone in my life believed in me or showed me the pathway and showed me how to navigate this crazy process, um, which wasn't so crazy when we were applying, right? right? And it's crazy now. But um, giving that gift back is really important to me. What about you? And to help other people find out that they can pursue their dreams too. Yes. Yeah. It's really important. Absolutely. Now, you talk about um, elementary school and... um, and the, your experience there being that it was majority, the majority was African-American in, the, in your elementary school. That's right. So what, what happened when you went to high school? What was the difference there? Sure. When I went to high school, I was still living in the same majority black city. Yeah. But I was attending the magnet school for the gifted in New Orleans public schools. Benjamin Franklin High School. Okay. And at that time, Franklin in the 80s was only 10% black. Oh, wow. And so I went from a situation where I had been in the majority to a situation in which, in the same city, in which I was um, in a very strict minority. So did you realize that? I think sometimes when we're we're kids, we don't necessarily notice that. But did you know, what what did you notice in high school? I really noticed that because the students were from all over the city, for one thing, so not all from the uh, same neighborhood. Right. And we took school buses to get to campus or public transportation. So I loved the fact that I was meeting kids from all different kinds of backgrounds, but it was uncomfortable at times to be in such a small minority. So who did you turn to for support in that situation? I reflect back and realize that some of my greatest supporters were the African-American women who were on the faculty and staff of that school. Okay. They, there were about a half dozen women who taught various subjects, and one was even the librarian <laughs> and the sponsor of the student um, 
the student government. And those women, I think, really held me up and held up other African-American students and encouraged us to pursue our goals. You know, which is which is what you need. Yes. Right. Which is what we all need. Right. So you have these family members who you saw going to college and doing things and they were you said they were at the top of their class. Yeah. Right. And so let's back up for a second and explain why were you selected to go to this school? Well, I suppose I had earned um, a spot through testing and grades. That's right. And um, I had participated in the Gifted and Talented program at my public middle school. And our humanities teacher especially encouraged us to apply to this particular magnet school that she had attended herself. So you were already on the path of being tops in your class, right, in in middle school. So then you get... um, I don't know if you were selected or how, how it all, you know, nowadays it's like lottery, all these kinds yes. of things. So you now are going to this magnet school and uh, you're obviously smart and doing your thing. And you find your way to becoming the student body president. I was the first African-American student body president, the first African-American homecoming queen. <laughs> like, Julie, like, this is amazing, right? Like, this was the 80s. This was the 80s. Okay, so so we're not going to talk about how old we are because <laughs> I have a birthday coming. So okay. let's not, ugh, I can't even go there. All right, so you become the first African-American student body president. Yes. Now, uh, I'm just going to say this out loud because when someone tells me that they were the student body president or currently a student, you know, now that I'm working with or when I talk to someone like you and you say that, I always remember when I was at Vassar College Admissions, mm-hmm. Back in the day where we still wrote notes, right, yes. for each applicant. That's right. So the, the file folders were color-coded, and, and the top sheet was to take notes. And at the very top of the sheet, there was one line. And if the student was student body president, editor-in-chief of you know the yearbook or the newspaper, yes. uh, captain of a major sport yes. on campus... Eagle Scout or Girl Scout Gold Award or had some major like regional or statewide or national recognition of whatever that went at the very tippy top. So why do you I'm, I see you're shaking your head. So you, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, I did some more things. <laughs> yeah, right. So why do you think being a student body president is so worthy of being sort of really denoted on somebody's application? Because typically that student was elected by his or her peers. The entire student body at that school said, this is the person. This is the person who should lead us. So I think it's just, um, I say that not reflecting upon my own experience, but sort of universally, I think that's the experience um, that admission officers are thinking about when they're giving special attention to those kinds of positions. Well, and you're, you're absolutely, I love what you said. These are the people who have been selected elected by their peers. That's right. And so the application is so much more than just what you do, right? What you do becomes your resume, your application. But, you know, what people say about you say a lot about who you are as a person, your character. Exactly. Yeah. So I just think that's, it's just amazing. And I just, I wanted to just say how. I'm still really proud of that accomplishment all these years later, all these decades later. And so, you know what? I was student body president, too. Maybe that's why we get along so well. (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's go back to this little gem of, um, of these women. So these women encouraged you. And so what else do you remember? You know, let's speak, let's speak to those, those who are listening that are educators. What are key things that you remember they did that our educators could learn from? They held us to very high expectations. They knew that we were bright, and they wanted to make sure that we knew that we were bright, that we were strong students, that. and that we had the whole world available to us to do whatever we wanted to do. That's a golden nugget. If I haven't said this already, last week I said, you need pen and paper for this show because there's going to be golden nuggets. But it's holding people to high expectations, right? Teenagers will rise to the level you believe they will. Right. So last week's lesson was, you know, when, not if. Right. So when you do blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Okay. What else can you remember that they did? They were also there to just catch us when we fell. Oh, right. Because that's right. inevitable as well. Not everything is perfect. Um, you don't win every competition. <laughs> Things don't always go as planned. And they were there to say, it's okay. Keep going. Keep going. That's that's one of my favorite lessons these days, to keep going, right? Because I'm finding that I'm having to do that in my own life. Keep going. I feel like I'm on the right path. But teenagers, they often question, am I on the right path? Am I doing the right thing? Should I quit this team because I didn't? I don't get a lot of playing time? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so many questions they ask themselves. And it's important that we have our team of supporters, our village of cheerleaders, and our community of believers. So that's what we need to really be talking to students about and adults. How can you serve in one of those roles to help a teenager understand that they've got to just keep going? If they're following their gut intuition, right? I be your intuition. That's right. Then they probably should stay doing what they love doing. Even if they're not great at it, Mm -hmm. you can get there, right? Yes. I would also say that my parents were there for me. My parents just said to me, go for it. Do you want to be president or vice president? Go for president. (laughs) um, They were there cheering me on the whole time as well. They weren't sure what was happening at school or in education in general, but they had confidence in me and they allowed me to be very independent and just supported me as I went along. Parents are key. They trusted the... The educators around me. Yeah, parents are very key. I think my dad helped me make my buttons for running for president yes. or something like that. We sat up all night long doing something like that. Well, great. Well, um, we if I haven't said it already, you, you do need pen and paper always because they're always such great little nuggets for anybody who's listening, whether you're a, a student, a parent, or a teach students. So you're going to want to write them down because we're going to, when we come back soon, um, we're going to get into more of Julie's story and get to the place where she um, had, was at a place where we we're having to decide and how she uh, wrestled with that decision and had her team right there to support her. We are just getting started. Julie's going to share more um, golden nuggets when we come back. We need to go to commercial break, uh, but stay with us. Grab your beverage of choice. I know I've got my green tea here and my water, and you've got your water here. We've got the lavender going to keep us calm. I love it. Infuser. And the infuser, keeping us calm. So, all right, that uh, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Are you ready to become the applicant every college wants to admit? Would you like to become the adult that models success? Then join the thousands of students, parents, and educators who have found the perfect solution. Dr. Cynthia Colon, author of Tips, Tales, and Truths for Teens, offers motivational and empowering workshops and keynote addresses for your school or organization. She fuels confidence in students on their road to university life. Cynthia coaches parents, educators, and professionals to model a success mindset for students. Go to DrCynthiaColon.com to book her to speak, receive a free consultation, or have her as your personal coach. That's D-R-Cynthia-C-O-L-O-N. DrCynthiaColon.com. Visit the site today. tuned into Destination University. If you have a question about the program for Dr. Cynthia Colon, please send an email to destinationuniversity at gmail.com. That's destinationuniversity with a Y-O-U at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Cynthia Colon here with Julie Taylor Vaz, former admission officer and currently a private school counselor at the Buckley School in Los Angeles. Uh, We should have said this before, but between the two of us, I mean, we've probably visited over 200 colleges. Well over 200. Well over 200 colleges. So before we leave, let's, let's do like a round, like a fire like round of like our favorites because I've seen so many and I'm curious to know what your some of your favorites are too. Sounds good. See, I'm telling you, you need that pen and paper, everybody. Uh, okay, so we're going to get back. We're going to do that before we go today. But here, we're now in high school. So Julie Taylor Vaz is, is telling us her journey 
and uh, her pathway to college. And uh, she's the student body president. She's been elected by her peers. She's at this magnet school. She is in New Orleans. And um, at this particular school, even though the city is uh, predominantly African-American, the school is only 10% African-American. So she becomes the first African-American ASB president. And here she is now as a senior. And tell us what senior year was like and where you apply, like just where did you apply? What did you do? Tell us about sure, that whole process. Yeah. So back then, students didn't apply to as many colleges as they do now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and as I reflect, I applied to, I think, six institutions. Well, like nobody does that anymore. <laughs> right? So I applied to Harvard and Yale and <laughs> Penn and Stanford, and Brandeis, and Tulane. Okay. Well, and Tulane was the backyard school, right? The local, the local school. University. Right. The local private university. Did, did most people apply to Tulane? Was that like the... Tulane op- and LSU. Okay. Tulane. All right. Right. LSU. Okay. And so do you go to the college counselor office. What do you do back then, right? It's... I mean, nowadays we make appointments and all this stuff. We have a very methodical system now, (laughs) and I don't remember that structure at all. And there certainly wasn't a rush to apply early. Right, right. My Stanford application was due in January. I I don't even know that early action or early decision even existed, right? I'm I'm guessing it did not. early existed largely for athletes at Ah, that time. Okay, okay. Mm I love that. And like the college counseling office, you just would go by and like pick up an application and like fill it out. And that was pretty chat. Yeah. Now I'm curious. So you, you mentioned three Ivy League schools Mm -hmm. and who put that bug in your ear? How how did you decide who encouraged you to do that? That was my godbrother. um, Right. Trip Foster. So he said, there's more to the world than New Orleans, Louisiana. And you are a great student. And you are student body president, and you're going places. Mm-hmm. And I think you should go places outside of New Orleans mm-hmm. for college. Mm-hmm. And he just really encouraged me to reach for the stars. So I love this. And I, and I also want to say the point of, you know, most states want to keep their best students in state. And, and I think that's a noble cause as well. And that, 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 you know, a lot of students do stay in state. And at the same time, Many also come back. That's right. So it's it's not a bad idea to explore outside of, you know, your four walls, not literally, but, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, your 20-mile radius, right? Mm-hmm. So I love that. He wanted me to see what was out there besides New Orleans. Absolutely. I love that. So it's January. You apply, right? It's not November. You apply in, in, in January. So you just have a short window before you wait and you get your uh, decisions back. So they come, I guess... April, first week of April. That's right. And uh, I'm assuming you got in everywhere. No. No? Tell us where you got in. I got into Stanford and Penn and Brandeis and Tulane. And I'm not ashamed to say I did not get into Harvard or Yale. Oh, you know what? It happens to the best of us. There you go. (laughs) Well, so you got into Penn, the Ivy League school, and you had uh, other choices. And now... Now, we should pause for a second. Stanford. Stanford, people listening now are like, oh, what's she on to Stanford? Holy smokes. Wow. That's pretty great. You know, that's the obvious choice. That might be the obvious choice today, but that was not. So tell us. 1984. And (laughs) now we think of U.S. News and World Report in a variety of ways among those of us who are college counselors and admission officers. But back then, U.S. News and World Report's ranking had just hit the scene. It was 1983-84. And in the first year of that ranking, Stanford was number one. But Stanford didn't have that. Cachet. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, people were not clamoring to U.S. News and World Report to, to figure out where to go to college. So even though, even if it was there, it was the first time. But also, just to put in perspective, Harvard, uh, Stanford was not even uh, 100 years old. No. Uh, it was founded in, in 1885, established in 1891. This is 1984. So it's not even 100 years old. No. So can I just tell you uh, how old Harvard, Yale, uh, yeah, Harvard was established 1636, Yale in 1701, and Penn in 17-something, right? So 
Yeah. Pen, it was a baby. It was a baby. It was a baby. And nobody really thought that, you know, that anyone should pick Stanford over an Ivy League school. I don't even think the term Ivy Plus had been coined yet. <laughs> now people think of Stanford as being part of the Ivy Plus crowd. <laughs> oh, but well. back then, Stanford was not considered to be of the same caliber as the Ivies. Okay. So talk about that social pressure. What was happening now that you had these choices and you had until May 1st to make a decision? What was going on then? There was a great deal of pressure for me to choose the Ivy League institution simply because it was Ivy, not because it was the best match for me, but I was the person who had actually done the research. Mm. I was the person who was drawn to Stanford, uh, who felt that it it met my needs, but that was very specific research that I had done. It wasn't just sort of the quick off the top of your head, it's the Ivy, that's where you should go, idea that everyone was coming at me with. So, what are you feeling as a kid? You're a teenager. Yes. Right? And we sometimes forget that our students are teenagers because they act so so grown up, right? They act so grown up. But I often talk about, you know, that April time is so emotional, right? So, do you do what everybody's wanting you to do and carry that and be the the family member that goes to the Ivy League school? Or do you follow your gut? Now, tell a, tell a story that you told me about how students of color were portrayed and why you really loved what Stanford was doing yes. at the time. So in the 80s, I was receiving all sorts of literature recruiting me as a student of color and I don't even think we used that term back then. No, no, it was like minority students. Right. For sure. And some institutions were referring to me as a third world person. Wow. That just blows my mind when you told me that. And I thought, I live in the first world. I live in the United States. I'm not third world. And that was in like brochures and stuff? Yes. That's crazy. It was the, the term of the time. Right. At a lot of institutions. And that just didn't resonate with me. So those leaflets got thrown into the <laughs> trash right away. That didn't feel They'll good. They'll go unnamed right now. There you go. <laughs> and so what spoke to you about Stanford? What were they doing? I really felt that as I dug deeper and looked at statistics, I could tell that Stanford was really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. That Stanford truly was diverse. <sighs> Even and so then, it was doing that mission oh of God. mine. That was one of my main criteria. Um, I wanted a place in or near a city. I wanted a place with a strong reputation. I wanted a place that was medium-sized. I wanted a place that had this or that or the other thing. But another thing that I wanted was a significant number of students of color. I wanted a cohort. Right, right. I wanted there to be other African-American students. Okay. So you go there, and you just fall in love. I did. You chose that. And do you remember the day that you made that decision or who you told? Like, who was the first person you were like, this is what I'm doing? I don't remember that day. I remember the day I moved onto campus. Oh, tell us about that. Well, I had never seen Stanford. Everything I had learned, I had learned on paper (laughs) and through conversation because... There was no internet. There were no websites to visit. It was far. Probably expensive to go. I could not afford to visit. Yeah. So my very first day of seeing Stanford was my very first day of orientation. (laughs) I flew out there by myself. Wow. Was picked up at the airport by orientation volunteers. Got on a bus with other kids who were picked up at the airport like I was. And then driven to my dorm and saw all the orientation volunteers yelling my name. Someone yelled my name when they saw me because they had studied the Frosh book and could put name to faces. Oh, That's I love how that great person. the orientation program was. So it was <laughs> oh my like, God. Julie Taylor from New Orleans. Woohoo! And I just thought, okay, this is my place. This is for real. Uh, I've been to the Stanford campus. It's one of the most beautiful campuses in the country, in my humble opinion. Um, So 
can you just tell us what that what does that look like like you're from new orleans and there's very different architecture there so what do you notice right away what does that look like it took me a while to get used to the sandstone and red tile roofs <laughs> it really did it took me a while to get so used california to that. yes and it took me a while to get used to the natural um, California native plants like they eat the eucalyptus groves and things like that. Now I love trees. the scent of eucalyptus because Stanford has a huge eucalyptus grove near the stadium. The farm. Um, absolutely. <laughs> so um, it took me a while to get used to sort of the natural California approach to things instead of everything being manicured and old. So I just said the farm because uh, that was my natural in- intuition, and 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 uh, I, you know, as I as you know, I went to USC, so I'm part of that Pac-12. So yes. the farm, I'm very familiar with the farm. I've been there, blah blah blah. And um, you know, it's, it's worth saying that Stanford, the name Stanford, Leland, yes, Stanford, um, the school was named after the Stanford, the mo- you know, the mother and father, their only child. That's right. Who died of typhoid just before turning 16. Mm -hmm. And this um, couple tried for a long time to have children. They wanted children. And uh, she actually, especially for that time, she got pregnant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very late. Yes. And so they did everything for this child. And they, you know, this child wanted for nothing and needed for nothing. They they had lots of wealth at this point. And when he died, I mean, that was devastating. And so Jane Stanford really decided at some point that she wanted to be the mother of the children of California. That's right. It was very regional in the beginning. Very regional. And so when Stanford was founded, I did a little bit of homework. California was only 35 years old. That blows my mind. Right? So back to, again, Harvard was founded in 16, whatever I said, 1636. Uh, Yale is 1701. So these schools had been, they're like over 200 hundreds of years old. Right? So it's pretty amazing when you think about it that Stanford is now like basically the number one school in the country. Don't say that too loudly, right? People out there I are like, like no, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. But anyway, I, I think that the Stanford story, um, they actually were tuition free yes. for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And so anyone who wanted an education in the, in the region mm-hmm. could come. And uh, Stanford was always co-ed. Stanford was always co-ed. Oh, that's good. Stanford was always co-ed, so, whereas the Eastern universities had started out as men only. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. Okay. We are talking about Stanford and talking about Julie's journey in choosing the non-Ivy choice. And um, so after you graduate, I, I love this story, too. Tell us the story um, about you going home. You were going to be a lawyer. So yes. it, when when you're young and you're smart, you uh, have three choices. Lawyer, doctor, or going into you know, Wall yes. Street. Right? Doctor, Maybe. lawyer, engineer. <laughs> engineer. Oh, there At you go. At that time. Yeah. It wasn't, business wasn't even... Now there would be four, I suppose, doctor, lawyer, engineer, business person. Okay. So doctor, lawyer, engineer, you were going the path of lawyer. Yes. And you go home and tell us that story. So... After I had become a college admission officer and a college counselor, I went home to help my parents pack up my childhood home before moving. And my mother handed me a box filled with certificates and report cards (laughs) and all sorts of things. And one of the things I found in that box was a career interest inventory that I had taken as a test in middle school. And very clearly, the results of that test indicated that I should consider becoming a counselor. This is my favorite story, even more than like not choosing the whole Ivy, like the whole college story. This is my favorite story. You know why? Because we have to learn to listen to our gut. That's really what we're talking about today. Listening yes. to your gut and having people around you who encourage you to listen to that gut. So often I say to parents, remember that kid, your child is now, you know, a senior in high school. Mm-hmm. What did he or she love doing at three, at five, at seven, at 10? I also have a niece 
and she loves music, yes. loves music, and sings and knows everywhere. She's four. I mean, even at three, she would do that. So I'm like, oh, you're going to be the next Ryan Seacrest. Or, you know, I say things to her like this because that's what you were really good at. So going back, and now you go you go back to, to being an admission officer, and, and you, you now feel like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. And not... And you and you no sort of law. derail from the law <laughs> because right. you had been interning, you'd been doing all kinds yes, of things, right? Yes, I had worked the law from every summer of college. I was president of the Black Pre, a uh, vice president of the Black Pre Law Society. I taught a class on Black issues in the law as an undergraduate, but <laughs> I needed to be a counselor. Right, you were doing. Uh, what the brand, right? The Pepsi challenge, right? right? You were doing um, the quote, what what everybody would say, you got to do this, you got to follow this path, you got to become a lawyer. And uh, now you finally say, you know what? I've got permission to do what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. So, okay. So um, probably the biggest thing that the listeners picked up on is that you were in the admission office as an admission officer at Stanford, probably in the days when they were really rising to become Stanford. So I hope it's okay that I ask you when we come back to share some of those stories, some of the behind the scenes truths of the Stanford admission office. Sure. Okay. So I want you to all to stay with us because we're here with former Stanford admission officer, Julie Taylor Vaz, private school counselor. She's filled with golden nuggets. Please have your pen and paper ready and uh, have your, you know, we've got our, our, our waters ready. We need to take a commercial break, but Please stay stay tuned. We will be right back. Are you ready to become the applicant every college wants to admit? Would you like to become the adult that models success? Then join the thousands of students, parents, and educators who have found the perfect solution. Dr. Cynthia Colon, author of Tips, Tales, and Truths for Teens, offers motivational and empowering workshops and keynote addresses for your school or organization. She fuels confidence in students on their road to university life. Cynthia coaches parents, educators, and professionals to model a success mindset for students. Go to DrCynthiaColon.com to book her to speak, receive a free consultation, or have her as your personal coach. That's D-R-Cynthia-C-O-L-O-N. DrCynthiaColon.com. Visit the site today. tuned into Destination University. If you have a question about the program for Dr. Cynthia Cologne, please send an email to destinationuniversity at gmail.com. That's destinationuniversity with a Y-O-U at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Destination University. I'm your host, Dr. Cynthia Colon, and I'm here with former Stanford admission officer, Julie Taylor Vaz. We are broadcasting live from the Buckley School here in Sherman Oaks, California, where Julie is the director of college counseling. Wow, we are having fun today. It's a great time. You were telling me that you like had an internship with NBC. So <laughs> with the local NBC affiliate <laughs> in New Orleans, I did. Well, we're 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 in our element. I can I can tell that you are right in your element. So thank you so much. You're it's such a treat to be with you. Thank you for having me. So as I said just before we went to break, that I'm sure um, <laughs> what's interesting to us is maybe not the most interesting to our listeners, but what's interesting to them, I'm sure, is your time at Stanford in the admission office. So I um, thank you for your permission to ask you, what can you share with the listeners? Um, you know, what were some applicants that stood out, your favorite essay, maybe a little mishap, a little something? Give us, give us something. Give you something. Pearls of of wisdom and also some like craziness. (laughs) So I was in the Stanford admission office for six years. And during the very first year that I did admission, one of the students that we admitted was David Shaw, who is currently the head coach of the Stanford football team. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with college football. So I'm like just dying. I want you to introduce me to him. Wow. So you... um, you were part of that committee that admitted him. I was part of that committee. It happens that his father had been hired to work at Stanford under Denny Green. And um, his father, Willie Shaw, was coming to the university. And so it was fun to admit um, Willie's son. But one of my very favorite students of all time from my time at Stanford 
was David's roommate, Von Bryant. Oh, wow. Who was on the football team with him. Okay. Who was coached by Willie Shaw. <clears throat> who went on to get a master's degree in social work at Northwestern after he left Stanford and played mm-hmm. in the professional leagues for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went back to the NFL and worked to help players who had not finished their college degrees go back and finish those degrees. What? Go back to college and finish their degrees. Oh, my gosh. He needs to be a guest on my show. That is fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? That's a great story. Yeah. Tell us his name again. His name is Vaughn Bryant. And he was the roommate. To David uh, Shaw. David Shaw, yeah. Okay. They're still really close friends. Oh, my God. What a great story. I love that. Yeah. Masters in Social Work from Northwestern. Another one, right. one of my favorites. Okay, now, so tell us. Another um, favorite. Yeah, tell yes. us this one. So in my very last year of admission at Stanford, I read the most hauntingly beautiful essay written by mm-hmm. a young woman from DeLille, Mississippi, mm. a small town outside of New Orleans on the Gulf Coast, who... His name is Jesmyn Ward, J-E-S-M-Y-N, Ward, W-A-R-D. <gasps> and her essay was so beautiful that when the Stanford Alumni Magazine asked for nominations of college admission essays that should be published in the fall when the students came to campus, I immediately said, this one. And Jesmyn's essay was published and now she has gone on to be a published author who has won the MacArthur Genius Grant, <laughs> who has twice won the National Book Award, wow. who has published a memoir and three novels. It's amazing. And you read her admission essay. I read her admission essay. Oh, and two this. years ago, our head of school said, Julie, we're going to read this book um, by an author you might know in our senior administrative team. It's wild. And I said, not only do I know who you're talking about, but I read her Stanford application. <laughs> and the first thing we did in our admission in our administrative team meeting before reading her novel was to read her college admission essay. Wow. Out loud what was the in book? Our I see uh, two books. What was the book that you read for, as administrative team? Sure. She has many books. Yeah. Um, so we read um, Sing Unburied Sing, I've read recently. And okay. then um, I can't even think of the names of them right now. Let's put okay. it down. But she's also authored a memoir, and that was actually what we read. The oh, memoir, got um, it. Of all of the young men, the black men in her community who had died in various ways. It's called Men We Reaped, nice. a memoir. And it's about all of the people with whom she grew up in this really underserved community. And one of her themes through all of her books is that these people who are in the underclass in some ways mm-hmm. are real people with real lives and real emotions and we need to pay attention to them, and they don't get enough attention. And she, you said that she teaches. She teaches at Tulane in creative writing now. Love that. Isn't that And great? you were admitted to Tulane and local. and the, I'm going to be in New Orleans in a couple of weeks for my Rodina Fields con- uh, convention, and maybe I should go knock on her door. I love that. Oh, my goodness. Okay, any other little secrets? Can you give us one little secret? A little secret? A little secret? Um... Well, this might seem a secret to some. You know, the people who read applications Mm -hmm. at institutions like Stanford and at colleges and universities all over this country are real, live (laughs) human beings. So much so that the team with which I worked at Stanford is having a reunion. I love this. In a few weeks Mm -hmm. in Northern California. Everyone who worked under Dean Jean Fetter, who was one of the first women to head up an admission office at a major, a place like Stanford. Um, she's a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, she is calling us all together for a little reunion. We're going to have a potluck at her house. And I am going to drive up to Northern California to participate with about 25 other people who served under Jean. So one of the things I talk about is that this process is not objective. No. It is subjected to humans. That's right. We are real people. And um, I love that you're saying that you're going to get together, all these people who worked there. I know others. I actually have other friends who've worked at Stanford as well. I wonder if they'll, they'll be there. But one of the things that um, former Vassar College admission folks do, we do the March Madness brackets. Every, Still together? Yes. Yes. And then yes. JC Tassone, he's in the office. He's the director of admissions now. And and he sends out an email, I don't know, like, a, you know, days before to 
anyone who's ever been an admission officer at Vassar, and you know, we actually have so many days to register your brackets or whatever. But I, you know, I, I love college sports, so I, I do it for that reason. But I also just do it because it's a community of people. Right. It's a really tight knit. A group of people. It's like a fraternal organization. It is. Even if you were not there during the same years, you have some sense of what it was like to work there. And you feel connected to, I feel connected to the people who are doing Stanford admission now, even yeah. though I served during the 80s and 90s. So they're not scary people. No. <laughs> the moral of the story is they're not scary people. So uh, when we suggest that you introduce yourself, you send a note, or they're just people. And certainly everybody likes to get a thank you note. So, okay, we've made some promises. Oh, so, gosh, this is this time is flying by. We, we've got like flying. seven minutes left. So there are over 4,000 colleges and universities in the U.S., I want you all who are listening to let that sink in for a second. There are more colleges than there are shopping malls, Apple stores, amusement parks, and national parks combined. So there are like 2,500 four-year institutions and then the others that are two-year institutions. And next week, I'm going to be interviewing uh, the executive director of Colleges That Change Lives. Uh, She's also the national spokesperson for that, and she's going to be one of your keynote speakers this year, Maria Furtado. And so next week, um, tune in because she's going to give you an earful of colleges that you probably have never heard of. Hopefully you have, but probably not. So, in that sort of spirit of Maria, yes, um, we're gonna do a Spitfire channel. And we're channeling Maria if you're listening. Oh my goodness, we are channeling you, getting ready for next week. Okay, so I'm gonna say uh, uh, a type of school, and you tell me what you what first comes to mind, and I'll tell you mine. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Scoot into the mic. So we're we're gonna share the mic here. All right. So your favorite. Science, Technology, Engineering, Math School. At the moment, Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Mine is Olin College of Engineering. Okay, all women's college. Wellesley, Smith, Scripps. Agnes Scott, Barnard yes. College. Liberal Arts College. Pomona, Bates, McAllister. Oh, that's good one. Bowdoin College for me. Business School. I would say business schools within larger institutions, like Villanova's, Indiana's. Oh, that's good. Babson College for me. East Coast College? Tufts, Rochester. Mm. Seton Hall? Uh, South? Gotta go with Tulane here. (laughs) Emory, too. (laughs) That's good. That's good. You get bonus points for that. Mine is Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. Southeast? Davidson in North Carolina and like University of Miami. Yep, that's mine too. I got that on my list. Midwest School. Wash U and Northwestern are very popular among my students. So I'm going with St. Louis University. Maybe that Catholic school in me, Catholic yes. school girl in me, but also it's it's also one of my favorite those beautiful campuses. It has the most statues of any college campus. Wow. Yep. There's a tip. Pacific Northwest. Lewis and Clark University of Puget Sound, Tacoma, Washington. Gonzaga University, Yahoo! West Coast, West Coast Stanford. Ah, I knew you would say that. Um, for me, it's U- UC Santa Cruz. That's where banana I had my slugs. banana slugs. That's where I had my rookie camp when I first became a yes, college admission of officer. Yep. Uh, Catholic school, Georgetown, Xavier University of Louisiana. Yep. And Loyola, New Orleans. I had Xavier uh, in Ohio. Private institution? Private. Um, I like all of those big universities with state school names, like Boston University, Southern Methodist University, you know, Northwestern University. People assume they're state universities, public institutions, but they're just named after places. (laughs) Um, Okay, so did I skip one? College football team. Your favorite college football team. Duh. LSU and actually Alabama. How about that? Okay. For me, it's Nebraska and USC. Of course, I have to say my Trojans. Okay. we got to keep going. Uh, We've got five tips for you before we leave. So write these down. Here we go. Let's uh, quickly go through them. Julie, you go first. I think it's just really important for students to be themselves, be their best selves in their applications and not try to be what they think admission officers want them to be. Okay. Number two, find your mentors. Again, your community of uh, supporters, cheerleaders, and believers. Find them. Three, 
know your friends and hang with those people who have goals that are similar to yours and who want only the best for you. Absolutely. Number four, find the person who will say when you go to college, when you become a lawyer. And if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it's powerful. And number five, believe in yourself. Oh my goodness. Okay. My friends, we have offered you some tips and tales, but here is the real truth. As a teen, and even as an adult, it is easy to be lured in by the brand name, the pretty, the perfect, the prestigious. But check yourself. The school that tugs at your heart is likely the school for you. Parents, try not to put too much pressure one way or another. Ultimately, this decision will become their home for more than just the four years ahead of them. Allow your teen to accept the marriage proposal that is best for her, the campus that is best for him. And if you are as lucky as Julie, you just might be choosing the school that becomes the next big thing. So the moral of the story, take the Pepsi challenge, blind test and go with your gut. We're running short on time, but Julie, tell us, tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you if they should have um, a question. The best way to reach me is via email at jtaylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, hyphen, Vaz, V-A-Z, as in Victor Apple Zoo, at buckley.org, jtaylor, hyphen, Vaz, at buckley.org. Okay, that's great. Uh, college football starts this week. I'm sure we'll be watching. Uh, gracias por acompañarme. Tú eres mi familia. Thank you for joining me today. You are my family. For additional free resources, free consultation, or to register for my essay camps, you can go to my website, drcynthiacolon.com. And if you have a question or a topic or something, or you want to recommend a guest for my show, please email at destinationuniversity at gmail.com. That's destination U, Y-O-U, university. Educators and adults, if you're looking to earn extra income or save for college tuition, you can also uh, email me and we can have a chat And that is all for today, my dreamers. I am Dr. Cynthia Colon. If this episode has fueled your confidence or helped you think about bigger dreams, please share this episode with three people in the next 30 minutes. I'll see you next Wednesday at noon Pacific for another episode of Destination University. Until then, wherever you are, may you have a happy and sunny day. Bye-bye. Say bye, Julie. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening this week to Destination University. Be sure to join Dr. Cynthia Colon again next Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And get one step closer to your success. 